Brahms Passacaglia in the second movement is much more obvious because he presents it to us in the first couple of bars with a pair of horns playing forte. So, hard to miss. it's not just a strong melodic motive it's also a very strong rhythmic motive and again this forms the basis and over the top of that he creates an extremely beautiful counter melody that we first hear in the clarinets and later on that counter melody is developed in the strings first in the celli and then in the upper strings and then we come back to the passacaglia theme this time with you know massive chains of 30 seconds going underneath it in the low strings um, till it all comes back to a very quiet ending and the restatement of the Passacaglia theme. So it's it's a much more, if you like, as you would expect from Brahms, it's a much more traditional treatment of the Passacaglia structure. Then he does it again in the last movement. Less yeah. obvious, however, in the final movement. His work with the instrumental structures first of all of the winds and brass together it's the first entrance of the trombones they've been sitting around since the top of the symphony waiting sure. for a chance to play right um then with the wonderful counter melodies in the strings which really completely take over that amazing sort of flute cadenza style. Right, your, your, your principal flutist, Sharon Sparrow, said yesterday on Facebook that it was an expression of controlled despair. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the the fourth symphony is so spectacularly beautiful that we often forget it is in fact his final symphony. So it is it is giving us the man's final thoughts on the development of the symphony. It's giving us his final thoughts on life, the world, the universe. <laughs> And the flute solo is quite extraordinary because it comes out of this very densely orchestrated movement otherwise, and suddenly there's just a flute and some accompanying strings playing a very sparse accompaniment. And Sharon and I spent a little time on it together on the first day because I really believe it should be treated 
almost like a cadenza. It really, I, I deliberately make a choice, and Sharon was right on board with it, to take that little passage right out of the sort of musical context of the movement. It's just a, a moment of reflection. If you like, every, every great romantic work has a structure that builds, then at some point there is a low point, and then you build to the end. I mean, that's very in a very sort of bold, kind of concise way. If you like, this is kind of the low point, the flute. It's the softest moment. It's the rhythmically most free. It's very expressive in terms of the shaping and the dynamic nuances. And it's quite off kilter in terms of rhythm. So uh, he really, it's like he just takes the carpet away from underneath our feet for a few moments. And is he giving us a vision of what's to come? Is he giving us a vision of the approaching end of his life? I don't know, but it's it's a very special moment. I'm speaking with Simone Young, who conducts the Detroit Symphony Orchestra this weekend in music of Anton Webern and Johannes Brahms and Franz Josef Haydn. Uh, we're talking about Brahms' Fourth Symphony, which we are about to hear in this live broadcast from Orchestra Hall in Midtown Detroit. You held positions in Brahms' hometown. Uh, could you reflect on what it was like to walk in his footsteps of the, of the young Brahms? Yes, it's um, Hamburg. It's impossible to get away from four composers, Handel, Mendelssohn, Brahms, and Mahler, because they all held very significant posts in the city at various times in their lives. And the old concert hall in Hamburg, now they've built the new Elbphilharmonie, which is down on the harbor, but the old concert hall, a very beautiful shoebox hall from 1908, it stands on Brahms' plutz. And there is a statue of the man outside stage door. You cannot get away from Brahms in Hamburg. And who would want to? So there's that ex wonderful tradition of his music. And of course, Bruno Walter worked in Hamburg. So uh, Klemperer was there, Jochen was there, all these guys that we associate with the work of Brahms, of course, building on that tradition. So um, yes, as, a, as an Australian walking into this sort of almost shrine to Brahms, uh, you can believe it when I say I was very nervous conducting my first Brahms one there. And, uh, but we recorded all the four Brahms symphonies and I established a Brahms festival. I played a lot of Brahms leader myself. Yes, Brahms just kind of hangs over the city. The orchestra and I won the Brahms prize one year. I mean, it's, it's, it's actually rather lovely to have that connection. feel thoroughly eingedeutscht. I've been, I've been Germanized thoroughly. Um, I love how there's a word for every action that's several syllables. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Wasn't it? Uh, yeah. I mean, the German language I find, I find very fascinating. I speak it fluently now. 
And uh, there are certain things about the phrasing within the language that also define how one phrases certain shapes within a musical line. For example, when you come across the rhythm ta ta, and it goes on in the next part ta ta ti ta ta tam, the small note, the the, the eighth note, is very rarely actually an upbeat, because you have to think of all those German words wohnen, essen, lieben, wollen. They're all the German verbs, and the emphasis is on the first syllable. And the second syllable is lighter but finishes with a consonant. It's not like Italian where it rises, finishing with a vowel. It finishes with a consonant, it falls, it stops. So these phrases, they have to finish and then start again. And that's what you learn from becoming very familiar with the language and with the traditions. So many great Brahms stories of launching and then reworking and, and redoing. Many of those favorite stories for me do involve his symphonies and other works, but one of the most famous Brahms stories is the take-a-long-time-coming-to notion of writing a first symphony. And In fact, it even began as a, as, a, as a symphony and then became a piano concerto, which wasn't that successful to start. Yeah. He took 17 years to write that first symphony. Incredible. um, Which is absolutely astonishing. And what's always interesting to know is that it received, uh, it had a very poor reception at its first outing in Munich. Um, In those days, the orchestras didn't publish the programs in advance. They simply, you subscribe to eight philharmonic concerts. And there there are still copies of records, copies of letters that audiences sent saying, we are cancelling our subscription if there is ever any more music from this terrible Mr. Brahms. It might have been that audiences possibly were were put off. It's hard to know why audiences put off today by so-called new music. I mean, these days I think there's a bit of a 50-year rule. Anything that was written more than 50 years ago, we're kind of ready to accept. I don't know whether we've educated our ears to get around it, get ready for it, and more recent music is more difficult to accept. It doesn't explain the Brahms phenomenon because in those days there were many, many works that were huge successes at their first outings. He wasn't a terribly, um, 
I can't find the right word in English, we'd say zimpatic. She wasn't particularly appealing as a, as a person. Um, he didn't go out of his way to make friends. He didn't go out of his way to be popular. Um, he didn't court supporters. I read about a conversation he left once and came back and apologized if he had not insulted everyone. <laughs> uh, enough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's what you're dealing with. I mean, he said, he said terrible things about colleagues at the same time, about Dvorak. I seem to remember he was fairly uncomplimentary about Tchaikovsky. Is that possible? There, there, in Hamburg, there was a big rivalry because Tchaikovsky presented his Fifth Symphony. The Fifth Symphony of Tchaikovsky had its first German performance in Hamburg, and it was received terribly because nobody wanted to know about it because Hamburg was the city of Brahms. Yeah. You know, it's... Maybe we'd call Brahms something of a frenemy today. <laughs> sounds, sounds a little bit that way. Yeah, maybe when he was starting his, his First Symphony, he wouldn't have had terribly many followers on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> We're looking forward to the Fourth Symphony by Brahms next on the second half of our Detroit Symphony program. Simone Young conducts the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. Thanks for coming today. You're very welcome.